First Corinthians chapter 16. And we'll be here again next Monday evening as usual, 8 o'clock, continuing in our studies in chapter 16. And don't forget that all of the tape recordings of the messages thus far in this series are available, as are this evening's messages uh, on tape after the meeting if you want to purchase them. We're looking tonight at chapter 16, verses 5 through to 12. And the title I've given you on your sheet is Men at Work. Verse 5, Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. Now just in case you weren't here last week, let's just read verses 1 to 4, where Paul took up the subject concerning collections, and we'll see how he got on to this subject that we're on tonight. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timotheus, that is Timothy, come, see that he may be with you without fear. For he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me, for I look for him with the brethren. As touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren, but his will was not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have convenient time. And we saw last week in verses 1 to 4 that Paul spoke to us concerning collections, concerning our stewardship financially toward God, our responsibility uh, as a people of God financially in God's eyes. But you know, this chapter is not just about money, as we will see tonight, but it's about stewardship in general, in many senses. The first stewardship that we looked at last week was our stewardship of income. How many of us have an income? in our own domestic lives, out in the workplace. And we were encouraged last week to set by some of that income in store as God has prospered us and bring it together with the people of God on the first day of the week and bring an offering to God out of what God has prospered us in a sense of wealth through our income. We have a stewardship before God. We have a responsibility before God to give to God financially. But tonight we're going to see that not only do we have a stewardship of our finance and our monies. But we have a stewardship before God of our opportunities. We are responsible to God, we'll see in verse 5 to 9, for the opportunities, or as Paul puts it very metaphorically, the open doors that God sets before us in our eyes. We have a responsibility and a stewardship to step through the doors that God opens up for us. Then we'll see also, not all of it tonight, but certainly verses 10 to 12, and then later on, right through to verse 24, that the church of Jesus Christ also has a stewardship of individuals. Not just of income, not just of opportunity, but we have a stewardship of individuals, i.e. people in the church of Jesus Christ. And these three stewardship, if you like, are the greatest resources that we have Apart from the spiritual blessings, of course, in the church of Jesus Christ, the resources of income, the resources of opportunity, and the resources of individuals who are gifted and who are called by God to serve him in the church. And what Paul is teaching us here, even tonight through example, that these resources of the church must not be wasted. Financial resources. The opportunities that God gives us in his sovereign will as he opened doors before us as a collective people of God or as individual Christians in our personal lives. 
and also as individuals, those gifted individuals among us, and we know from previous weeks that we're all gifted in one way or another, but we must not waste our resources. We are responsible before God regarding what God has given to us. Now, tonight we're looking at men that Paul mentions, men who are at work in the church of Corinth. We could say men of God who are at work within the church of Jesus Christ. And we want never to see men of God wasted within the church of Jesus Christ. But we'd have to say that the day and hour in which we live, we are seeing a great wastage or perhaps famine of men of God. Many of them are passing on to glory. They're dying and going to be with the Lord, which is far better. But for us here on earth, it's not far better for us because we're losing great godly men who could teach us many things. And there's not too many folk around to teach us those spiritual truths today. And sometimes I feel so much like the psalmist in Psalm 12 and verse 1, where he lamented the fact, even in his day, and maybe it's just something that every generation goes through, and he said, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, and the faithful feel from among, from among the children of men. Individuals who God is working through seem to be wasting in our day and age. Now, we're going to see tonight firsthand men of God at work. Now, let me shoot a warning shot across your bow just at the very beginning here. I don't want you now to switch off and say he's going to be talking now to people like himself, pastors and preachers and missionaries and evangelists and full-time Christian workers from whatever shade of the spectrum they may be. You couldn't be farther from the truth because we've seen in these recent weeks studying the body of Christ that we've all been gifted of God in one way or maybe many, but we've all something to do for God. And let me say this very categorically, potentially all of us can be men or women of God. All of us. We will see from this passage tonight that Paul had no conception of spiritual giants that there are these Nephilim in the spiritual kingdom of God who tower above the rest of us, and we can never reach their pinnacle. Paul did not have that ideology in mind. He believed that all of us, because we're all in Christ, and we all have the same potential spiritual blessings, we all can reach that pinnacle of being men and women of God. Now, before we even look at these men of God, there are many lessons in discipleship that we see here in the example of the apostle. Of course, the great apostle was a teacher, and a teacher after the, the school of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the great teacher of men. And any teacher is diligently committed to his students, and Paul was, of course, as our Lord Jesus Christ was. But we know, as we've been studying this book in recent weeks, that the classroom at Corinth was struggling. They were feeling the pass mark of the spiritual life, so much so that Paul said, Ye are carnal, I have to talk to you like nursery children. You're babes in Christ. You should be eating meat, but you're still feeding on milk. And so they needed someone to come literally to where they were and to show them firsthand how to follow God. They needed an example. So Paul volunteers himself to tutor them and bring Timothy along to help them. And so we find in verse 6, he says this, And it may be that in my journeys I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. I'm going to winter with you. I'm going to spend some quality time with you and give you an example in my life and my teaching and Timothy's teaching and his example of what godliness really is. Now that word with that we have in verse 6 and elsewhere in this passage, it carries the idea of intimate involvement. Paul wasn't just from an arm's length discipling these Christians. He's literally saying, I'm going to winter with you. I'm going to come face to face in contact with you, in dialogue, so that I can bring you along as you watch me living for Christ. Now, can I just say this? That what people need today, and especially, could I say, young people in our assemblies, is not just your exposition of Scripture, but more than that, People today in our world need the example of Scripture lived out in the life. The exposition of the life testifying to the belief. 
Now let me show you exactly what I mean. Chapter 15 and verse 58 that he ended this great discourse and resurrection with. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul in chapter 16, I believe, is now giving Paul's personified examples of verse 58. He's giving us an example of someone who is steadfast. That is Timothy. Timothy is steadfast. What about immovable? We'll find that Apollos is exactly that. He's a prime personification of a man of God who is unmovable. And the last qualification is always abounding in the work of the Lord. And who else could be a, a, an example of that other than the great apostle Paul himself? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Timothy, steadfast. Apollos, unmovable. The apostle Paul, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And you know what Paul's doing for us? He's giving us expository lives. Examples. Corinthians, this is the way that you're to live. You will know that in 2 Corinthians and chapter 3 and verse 2, he says to the same group of Christians, ye are our epistle. You're our epistle. You people, you Christians, testimonies are our letters written in our hearts, known and read of all men, men in Corinth with Greek pagan backgrounds, and even the Jews, they reject their Messiah. They're not going to read your New Testament, but you're the Bible that they're going to read. So you have to exposit the Bible in your very life, in your actions, in your word, in your deed. You've heard the little verse, I'm sure you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, in the deeds that you do, in the words that you say. This is Paul's great point in our passage this evening. You, as he says to Timothy, in another occasion, you need to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, a lot of men quote that verse, and they quote it in the King James, study to show thyself approved unto God. And there's nothing wrong with that translation, other than that the word study is an old English word that just means be diligent. It doesn't mean getting the books down and the Greek lexicon and spending a couple of hours in the study. That's not what it means. It means be diligent. Do all in your power study to present yourself approved unto God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. In other words, you need to do God's work, the Lord's work, in the Lord's way. And only by doing that, as we find out in chapter 3 of this book, will we build to ourselves something lasting for eternity. Something of gold and silver and precious stone. Now, we're going to see tonight some master builders at work in the work of God. Come with me as we look at the first one, verses 5 to 9. And we see, first of all, Paul's plans. And we can learn a great deal from Paul's plans. And it's twofold in this sense, and I didn't put this in your notes because I want to keep you awake, and you should be doing a wee bit of writing, filling in those big gaps in between the three points. There are two sub-points under Paul's plans that I want to give you. And here's the first one. Paul's plans were scheduled by God's will. Paul's plans were scheduled by God's will. Look at verse 4. I want you to see one word. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. That word meet is a very interesting word. It's the same word that we have in Timothy where... He exhorts him to be a vessel meet for the master's use. In other words, a vessel fit, a vessel right to be used by God. And it's the same sense here. Paul's saying, if it's right for me that I go also, then you shall go with me. But the point that I want you to see this evening is that Paul's plans were scheduled by God's will and God's will alone. He wasn't bound by or obligated to certain people to do certain things at certain times at their will and every whim. Not the great apostle. He's saying, my schedule is planned by the will of God, and if the will of God allows me to come with you, I will come with you, but I'm not giving you any guarantee. Look at verse 5. 
Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia, verse 6, and it may be that I will abide. It may be. He's not selling himself to the Corinthians program. He's not allowing himself to be bound by any contract of an organization or a group of people that claim the name of Christ. He is saying, my schedule is determined by God's will, led by God's Spirit. Look on in verse 6. And yea, and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey. Look at this word. Whithersoever I go. Whithersoever I go. There's an uncertainty about it. In other words, he's not going to be bullied into to, to where he's going, be told or signed up to some kind of program that he can't get out of. But the only condition that the Apostle Paul gives as to whether or not he will be with this East Corinthian people is in verse 7. For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you if the Lord permits. What about that? Well, this plays havoc with a lot of the way we do things today in our age, even our churches. The Apostle Paul wasn't planning too far ahead in many senses, but nevertheless, his planning that he did make was according to the will of God. And he wasn't making any promises to anybody because he didn't know he might have to break a promise if he made it, because God could say, no, you're not going. You have to go over here. This is where I need you. I hope you can see that. In fact, the Apostle James said, didn't he, in his epistle, in chapter 4 and verses 13 to 15, go to now ye that say today or tomorrow I will go into such a place and buy and sell and there get gain. For ye know not what shall be in the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. But ye ought to say, if the Lord will, ye shall do this or do that. Now I wonder, are our plans made by the will of the Lord? Now, please don't think that I'm going off the scale tonight in some kind of subjective spiritual realm where we have to be in some way hearing God's voice to us all the time and what we do and we can never plan ahead. I want you to see this first point very clearly. He scheduled his plans by God's will. He did schedule them. And although he might have to change a plan now and again, he had a plan to change. He did plan. So we're seeing the balance of the Apostle Paul here. I know and I've read men who say you shouldn't even plan in the next week or next month or next year meetings to take and all the rest because you should be led by God's Spirit. But you can't live like that in the real world. The balance is, yes, make plans like the Apostle Paul did, but make no guarantees to those plans and realize that those plans will only go ahead if God permits. Some people quote you Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. And they interpret, <laughs> lean not unto thine own understanding to mean put your brain in neutral and don't think about the matter. That's not what God's word means, is it? God is legislating planning here. But it's legislating planning according to God's will and being surrendered and submitted to the possibility of God entering in and wrecking your plan. Turning them all upside down. Let me show you Paul's plan specifically tonight. Look, we'll go backwards from verse 8. He's writing from Ephesus. He says, but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. I'm just going to stay where I am until Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is not talking here about the experience that the believers had in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. And it's not talking about some religious festival in the church the New Testament church is talking about the time of year when the Jews celebrated the religious feast of Pentecost, and it just meant a date on the calendar, like we have dates. And it's very akin to Easter, our own springtime. So Paul's saying here, but I will tarry at Ephesus until springtime. And then if you move back a couple of verses to verse 6, he says, And it may be that I will abide ye and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. So he's going to stay to springtime uh, with these people in Ephesus where he's writing from, and then he's going to move and pass through Macedonia, hoping to be all summer with them and eventually reach Corinth in winter. You see that? Verse 8, he's going to stay with them to springtime. 
He's going to travel through Macedonia, as we see in verse 5. I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, and I do not, uh, for I do pass through Macedonia. And then he'll come in winter time to the Corinthians and spend all winter with them. Men of God plan. They have to plan. Because men of God, and I wish we had time to look at this in the Apostle Paul's life, men of God have a vision. And people with a vision plan according to God's will. Not apart from God's will, and not making their plans and then asking God to bless them. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about in accordance and communion with God, making plans. Proverbs say, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord leads his step. Now Paul gives in verse 9 the reason why he's going to stay in Ephesus until springs out. Now this is so important because this shows us the second principle of Paul's plans. They were scheduled by God's will, according to how God led. He didn't give any guarantees, but nevertheless he made plans. But here's the second point, the reason why in verse 9, the reason why he stayed in Ephesus, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Paul's plans, secondly, were regulated by gospel opportunity. Have you got that? Not just scheduled by the will of God, but regulated by gospel opportunity. In other words, Paul's saying, God has opened a door here. A mighty door in Ephesus, an effectual door, and he's allowed us a place of blessing, and we just can't get up and leave now. God wants us to do something here. Now, there's a principle, if ever there was one. Do you get it clearly? The Lord's saying to you tonight, wherever you are, whatever sphere you work for him, that if I open a door for you, by all means, you step through that door. If there are great things to be done for God, you go through that door. Don't let the door close. Don't pass by the door. Don't ignore the door. When God presents you with opportunities, there is a stewardship before you to take those opportunities. But don't miss the other side of the coin. It's a two-edged sword. And the second edge is the sharpest of all because Paul links these two things together and he says, a great door and effectual is opened unto me and there are many adversaries. In other words, Paul is saying, Whenever there's an open door, there's always the old devil. You got it? When God gives you an opportunity to do something for him, you will find that with that opportunity comes the adversary. The two go together. They're never separated. And if you're going to do the Lord's work, you need to realize that you're going to encounter the Lord's enemy. So Paul's saying, yes, there's an open door. And if you get an open door like me to do a work, you step through that open door. But step through the open door with open eyes and realize that there's an old adversary there. That roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now I could spend all night going through Bible characters to prove this to you. That anyone in the Bible who's ever tried to do anything for God and to whom God has opened a great door effectual for them to do a work for him, they have met the devil himself at that door. They've met every obstacle and every persecution and every suffering possible. Nehemiah, who we're studying uh, these Sunday mornings, was it not he that found that in his very preparation of the work, there were three men, Tobiah, Sanballat, Geshem, who were all going to oppose his work for God. And what a proof that that was a work for God for him, that he... Stirred up opposition. You see this tonight? Even the Lord Jesus Christ in his temptation. And don't you believe that his temptation finished in the first couple of chapters of Matthew's gospel? I believe that the testing, the jibing of the devil went right throughout his whole life, right to Calvary. The fact of the matter is, God had opened a door to Christ to redeem the world from sin. Do you not think the powers of evil and the adversary was going to oppose that with every power in his being? Paul is telling us, you want to go through a door for God, you want to do something great for God, and who of us don't want to do that? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, who wouldn't put your hand up and say, look, I'd love to be something great for God. 
I would love to accomplish a great work for my master. But here's the question Paul is asking tonight in inference. He's asking first, are you prepared to meet a great enemy? It's not all about walking through great effectual doors. Are you prepared, if you're going to do a great work for God, to meet a great enemy? Because there's no opportunity without the adversary. G. Campbell Morgan, the great Bible expositor, said these powerful words. If you have no opposition in the place where you serve, you're serving in the wrong place. Do you hear that? That's a very exclusive statement. If you have no opposition in the place where you serve, you're serving in the wrong place. In your King James Bible, those words there are in the verse. For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. It's not there. So that the verse reads like this. For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and many adversaries. The adversaries are equal to the open door that is there. They're as real as the opportunities. Do you realize it? I think people go to serve the Lord and they think it's all a picnic and it's just a great time in the limelight and all the great opportunities. Listen, if you realize that the fields are white unto harvest and the laborers are few, you need to realize also that you'll have company in the harvest field, not from more laborers, but from the enemy of souls. I wish I had time to show you in Acts chapter 19, Paul in the city of Ephesus where he's writing from. The same city where he has that great effectual door of opening and where the adversary is. And you will read in chapter 19 alone about a group of blaspheming Jews. About a group of exorcist Jews trying to cast out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus when they didn't even believe in the Lord Jesus. You will read about the occult black magic at a deep dyed form. So that when people were converted they brought all their curious arts together and burned them all in the great bonfire. You'll read that this was the, the cultural and pagan religious center of Diana worship. And when Demetrius, a silversmith who made little gods of Diana, was converted, there was a great riot in the whole town, and they were going to kill Paul and his followers. Let me turn to you for a moment to Second Corinthians this time, chapter 1. Do we see this? Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Paul talking now about his time in Asia, in Ephesus, verse 8, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, and so much that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. We thought that we were going to die. Now listen, don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here. He wasn't afraid of the adversary. But he wasn't ignorant of the adversary either. He knew that he was there and he knew the danger that he posed. And his approach was to acknowledge adversaries, not to accept them, but to acknowledge them and realize that they were there. With Paul, the opportunities were more significant than the adversaries. But the fact of the matter is you need to realize that if God's setting an open door before you tonight in his sovereign permissive will, you need to know that there will be an adversary standing. At that door. John Patton, who was a university student in Scotland, felt the call of God to go to the New Hebrides. And he graduated from the university and he married his bride and they sailed to the southwest Pacific and began to work among the savage cannibals. His wife and his infant son died a few months later. And Patton faced the ordeal of sleeping several nights on the graves of his wife and his son lest the cannibals dug them up and at their bodies. He left after four years' faithful service without one convert to his name. What a waste, we might say. There was a door effectual that was open to him, and he stepped through it, and there was an adversary there to meet him. But when you read the rest of the story, you find out that many years later, his son, by another marriage, returned to those islands, and eventually he saw the entire island come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And when the elder John Patton revisited the chief of the former cannibal tribe, the cannibal chief asked the missionary, who was that great army that surrounded your hut every night when first you came among us? What great army? A great army of angels, believe it or not, but they were around him. 
protecting him. He had stepped through that door. It wasn't painless or costless, but God was with him. And through his faithful work, his son saw the whole people brought to Christ. And at the end of his trip, old John Patton said after ministering in another island through tearful eyes, I don't know of one native on these islands who has not made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, there are great effectual doors for us to step through, but let us not be unaware of the adversary and of the cross that we must bear. Oh, we're all prepared to step through the doors, aren't we? But are we prepared to meet the great adversary and enemy? Here's the second question. We could be all night in these. Are we prepared to go through small doors first? Paul says in verse 9, a great and effectual door, a big door is there for me to step through. And we all want the big doors to step through, don't we? But the only reason why Paul got the opportunity to step through the big door was because he had entered through many small doors before that. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 17, we read about the door to preach to the Gentiles. And the Lord set before him a door to take the gospel to the Gentile people and he stepped through it. 2 Corinthians 2, we read about the door that he stepped through to take the gospel to the people at Troas. And we read of other doors that he faithfully stepped through. And therefore Paul, when he came to the Colossians, had the right to ask them to pray that God would set before him a great door to make the gospel known to more people. And he had the right to do that because he'd stepped through every door that God had set before him. Well, sometimes we miss these lessons. There are open opportunities all around us here in the city and in our churches. And the fact of the matter is, the Lord Jesus said that those who will be faithful in the least will be committed to big things to be faithful in. And if you're not faithful in the wee things, the small doors, how do you think God's going to give you a big door to step through? Can I ask you tonight, are you faithful in the small doors that God sets before you? What am I talking about? Here's a verse. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Enter into thy closet. That door's always open, you know. The closet door for prayer. Have you entered into it? Think God's going to give you a great work to do, an effectual door of opening, revival, blessing, if you can't even go through the door of your own closet? What about this one? Revelation 3.20 to the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Are we involved in the open door of communion in the congregation? Not just in the closet, but in the congregation of God's people. Are we here to meet Christ? How can you go to the other side of the world to serve him if you can't go across the road to worship him? Are you prepared to go through the small door? Here's the third question that Paul is asking us by inference. Are you prepared to wait for God to open doors rather than you push them open? Eh, what about that one? Are you prepared to wait until God opens the door before you push that door open? Harry Arnside said, No servant of God who is in the current of divine will will ever have to hunt for open doors for testimony. Just be obedient. Did you get that? If God's opening a door for you, you don't have to hunt for it and you don't have to push it open and you don't have to bombard it and knock it down. Proverbs says, a, gift, a man's gift maketh room for him and bringeth him before great men. That means you don't need to advertise your availability to the church of Jesus Christ for preaching and taking meetings. You don't need to invite yourself. The amount of preachers that invite themselves, even to this pulpit, it's remarkable. Can I come and preach? You got a Sunday free for me. When I was younger, and I emphasize that, I was misled. I believe I was misled and I've learned my lesson for I was coming out of college and there was an assistantship in a church that was becoming available and a man said to me, respectable man, in many ways a man of God, he said to me, why don't you ring up the pastor there and ask him, would he consider you? And what a rebuke I got when I rang that pastor and he said to me very humbly and meekly, David, don't push God's doors open. Wait till he opens them for you. I wonder, do we learn these very basic lessons? 
But the trouble is we are not willing to let God guide us. He says to one of the churches in Revelation, I am he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And the business of the servant of Christ is to be in God's will and say, Here am I, send me whithersoever you want, and I'll go. Are you prepared to wait for God's doors to open rather than you push them? And here's the final question. Are you prepared to have the doors you want to open shut in your face? Are you prepared to have the doors that you want to open shut in your face? That happened to the Apostle Paul. And he was providing here for the possibility of it and all these suppositions that he makes about where he's going to be and what he's going to do because he knows God could just turn it all upside down. He's had experience in Acts 16. And, and in verse 7 we read that after they were come to Asia, to Mysia, they are said to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. I can say it without being too flippant. Paul got up one day and he said, I think we'll go into Bithynia. Come on, boys, we're going to go there and preach the gospel. And he went. And the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going in there yet. What about that? Are you prepared to have God shut doors that you want to open? I was astounded to realize that the great man of God and pioneer missionary David Livingstone who left his heart literally in Africa, who saw many African people come to the Lord Jesus Christ from, from a very early age. His vision was not for Africa. It was for China right up to the day that he died. But God never sent him to China. God closed China's door for Livingstone. But he opened up Africa and it was the great and effectual. Well, we must move on. Look in verse 10 to 11 at another master builder. We've seen Paul. I hope you've learned that he scheduled his plans by God's will. And secondly, he regulated those plans by gospel opportunity. And then secondly, Timothy's testimony. The second example, verse 10 to 11. Verse 10, look at it. Now if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. He's saying Timothy's testimony commands respect. There's the first sub-point. Timothy's testimony commands respect. Why does it? Paul says, listen, in this regard he's no different than me because he works the work of the Lord that I'm doing. Oh, what a lesson there is for us all there. He's doing the same work regardless of his youth, regardless of his inexperience, regardless of his physical health or his disposition, whatever that may have been. Timothy is working the work of the Lord and that's all the qualification that he needs. And therefore the great apostle commands him. Timothy was much younger than Paul and in fact even eight years after he wrote this part of the epistle, Paul still speaks of Timothy's youth. Age didn't matter to Paul as much as testimony. Have you got that? Age didn't matter to Paul as much as testimony. That's why in the qualifications for oversight in the New Testament, it says not a novice, not, not someone of young years in someone's estimation, but not a novice because testimony is the sense there. Not one who is immature, spiritually speaking. He said in verse 11, Let no man therefore despise him, and he expands that in First Timothy 4.12, of course, you know, where, where he says to Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example to all the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. You see that? He's saying, Timothy, it doesn't matter what age you are. Corinthians, it doesn't matter what age this man is I'm sending to you. What matters is this, his testimony... Timothy, I want you to be an example to all believers, young and old, in word and conversation and charity and spirit and faith and purity. And so he tells these Corinthians, now you be easy on them. Let them be among you without fear because you would know by now that the Corinthians could be a very critical lot, in fact, downright rude at times. For in 2 Corinthians they say of the apostle himself, for his letters, his epistles are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. What are they going to make of Timothy? But the fact of the matter is, Paul says, 
Timothy commands respect. And can I say this to you tonight? Any servant of the Lord, any servant of the Lord who God has called and commanded, no matter who they are, what disposition, what denomination, if God's put their hand on them, you've no reason to despise them. They command respect. If they're approved of God, why should they worry if they be approved of you? Who are you? Timothy commanded respect. But here's the second thing. He is commanded by Paul. And I want you to see this specifically. In effect, Paul is saying, look, don't despise him, verse 11, but conduct him forth in peace that he may come unto me, for I look for him with the brethren. In effect, treat him the way you would treat me. Let him be among you without fear. I want you to protect him. I look for him, he says. In other words, I prize him. And he pleads for him that they'll send him back in a good state with their blessing and peace because he esteems him. He commends him. I tell you, it would be a great thing to have the Apostle Paul commend you. And I think there's a whole lot of dodgy stuff that's written about Timothy within some commentary. You'd think he was a weak, weakling, pale-faced weakling that couldn't stand up to anything or, or, or do anything for God. The fact of the matter is, yes, he had often infirmities and all the rest, but he would have to be a mighty man to follow the Apostle Paul in anybody's estimation. Listen to what one commentator says about these two facts, how Timothy commands respect and how he's commanded by Paul and, and the, the standard that the church is to show towards the servant of Christ. He says there is much to learn in these little niceties of Christian conduct. Christianity consists as much of the way we act as in what we say, if one says that he is impressed and he means they're simply astounded with the heresies of modernists, then we say that we are astounded with the hypocrisies of the fundamentalists. And it's about time we began to inspect the conduct of our creed as much as we insist upon the correctness of our creed. How do we hold our beliefs? Do we hold them in grace? How do we treat other believers? no matter what we think about them. Paul said to this church, Timothy commands respect and he's commanded by me and I want you to respect him no matter what age he is or no matter what experience he has. What a master builder. And Timothy went into the midst of all that and built for God. Paul's plans, Timothy's testimony, and thirdly and finally, Apollos' independence. Another man of God at work. Let's see what we can learn from him. Verse 12. As touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren, but his will was not at all to come at this time. But he will come when he shall have convenient time. This is a remarkable verse. Apollos' independence. Now let me show you something about this man. Turn with me to the book of the Acts in chapter 18. The book of the Acts in chapter 18. In verse 24, we read of this man, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man. Apollos was an eloquent man. You got that? And mighty in the Scriptures came to Ephesus. Apollos was an eloquent man who was mighty in the Scriptures. In other words, the Old Testament Scriptures, because they didn't have the New Testament yet. But he was a mighty man who could preach the Word almost like no one else in his day. A mighty man who was eloquent to buy. In verse 25, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord. Now that's simply another way, I think, of saying he was a saved man. He was a converted man. He knew God in a personal way. Being fervent in spirit, what does that mean? He wasn't a wet fish in the pulpit. He was a zealous man. He, as we would say here in Ulster, had fire in his belly. He could preach the word with power. And he spake and taught diligently. He was a diligent man. He was consistent in everything he did. Whatever he taught, he, he, he backed it up with his life. He lived what he said. Knowing only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. He spoke boldly, an eloquent man, a mighty man, a saved man. 
a zealous man, a consistent man, and a fearless man, a Jew converted to Christ, going into the middle of the synagogue and boldly preaching Christ unto them. Verse 26, Whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. He was all those things, but he was also a humble man. He was able to have a man and, watch this, a woman. Man, you know what one of those is? You ever had a woman teach you? Here it is. He was humble enough, eloquent, mighty, zealous, consistent, to allow a man and a woman to teach him the things of God more perfectly. But let me show you this from Corinthians. He was a man who had a mind of his own. You got that? He was a man who had a mind of his own. Look at verse 12. Apollos, I greatly desired him, Paul says, to come to you with the brethren, but, but he was not willing to come at this time. Now just put yourself in the position for one moment. You're living in the day of the Apostle Paul and you've got a bit of ability with the Word of God and you can preach a wee bit and the great Apostle comes along and has a word in your ear and he says, David, you've been doing pretty well, you know, and I think you are the man you're the man. See that church in Corinth that's in pieces? I think you're the man to go and sort it all out. What would you think? What would most of us do? The great apostle thinks I'm the man. The great apostle thinks I've got the ability. Would you not be flattered just a little bit? The fact of the matter is, this man, having a request from his friend, the apostle Paul, wasn't swayed by friendship. It didn't affect him. And we have found out from the very first chapter of this book that there were divisions in Corinth. There were factions. Some said, I am of Paul. Some said, I am of Cephas, Peter. Some said, I am of Christ. But what was the other group? I am of Apollos. He had a friendship in Paul, but he also had a fan club in Corinth. But neither his friend Paul nor his fans in Corinth could, be, could sway this man to go there if it was not God's will. What a mighty man he was, eh? Someone has said this is pure, unjealous love and respect on both Paul's account and Apollos' account. Paul wasn't jealous of the following that Apollos had in Corinth. In fact, he invites him to come along and preach to them because he'll be listened to. Neither was Paul miffed at Apollos' refusal for not coming. Most of us would have got our backs up and said, he mustn't realize who I am, the great apostle. And that tells me about Paul, that he allowed other people the liberties that he enjoyed himself. But I want you to see too, not only the greatness of Paul, but the greatness of Apollos. He didn't promote himself, and he didn't pander to the party spirit in Corinthians. Surely he could have said, these people really love me. I'll get well paid there. I'll get a great listening. I'll be sitting up to a great table of a feast every night. Sure, they just love me in that wee meeting in Corinth. And he would go, but he didn't go. I wonder, is that the reason why he didn't go? He didn't want to serve God and mammon. Oh, what truths there are here. Paul did not envy Apollos, and there was no competition between Apollos and Paul. And, and what we see here in verse 12 is the type of liberty that prevailed for a servant of God in the early church. All that mattered was, were they guided of God? They weren't dictated to by any source. In fact, even the great apostle himself wasn't authorized to tell Apollos what to do. Do you see it? Some people believe that, that the apostles were the first bishops and had authority, and Paul was the first archbishop of the Western Asia and Eastern Europe. Well, if he was, he could have told Timothy, like bishops today, just you go there, whether you like it or not, and Apollos, you go over there. But there was no great hierarchy lording it over the rest in the church of Jesus Christ. There were just various assemblies among the saints, the servants of Christ placed of God among them, gifted by the Lord, and acting only in subjection to him. Harry Ironside as well said, I would not like to tear this chapter out of my Bible. It helps me to understand God's way of guiding his servants in their ministry for him. Isn't that true? We have seen God at work in men at work. Paul's plans, how he was scheduled by God's will alone, 
How he was regulated by gospel opportunity. How Timothy commanded respect. How he was commanded by Paul. And here Apollos' independence. How he didn't have any man, even the apostle, tell him what to do. God was his judge. Have we not seen tonight a man who is steadfast? Timothy's testimony. Have we not seen just now a man who is unmovable? Apollos' independence according to the Spirit of God in his life. And have we not seen a man always abounding in the work of the Lord? And I can almost hear Paul the Apostle say collectively, Be ye followers of us, even as we are followers of Christ. And as he finished verse 58 of 15, And if you're like that, if that's your work, like these men at work, your labor will not be in vain in the Lord. Father, we say with another hymn writer tonight beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. Lord, we realize that the Savior whom we love and believe in has called us to take up a cross and to follow him. Lord, we pray that we will do that. And every door of opportunity that you open before us, Lord, that we'll take it. That we'll not be ignorant of Satan's devices, but nevertheless we will be confident of thy promises. And we will go forth following the testimony of men like the Apostle Paul, Timothy, Apollos, men who were moved and motivated by God's will and the gospel of Christ. Lord, we pray that we will have those two facets of the Scriptures as our motivating factors in our lives. When the Lord Jesus told us in that great commission, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the evangelism, the soul winning, and the teaching, teaching them all things. Lord, let us be building up ourselves in our most holy faith, but let us be winning the lost and doing it all, Lord, not from our own motivation and plans, but according to thy will, walking in thy spirit. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen.